opportunity that we have in film also is to create melodic identifications with characters, like motif uh, technique from opera, if you like, mm -hmm. centuries old, but certainly works very well in film so we can um, identify people orally on and off the screen. We can suggest the presence of a character. We can sense Darth Vader's approaching because we hear his tune. And so these are parts of the toolbox of how we put together a soundtrack to a film that will elicit emotions and underscore them, suggest them, enhance them. That was 2009 National Medal of Arts recipient John Williams talking about the art of scoring films. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Born in 1932, John Williams has composed many of the most famous film scores in Hollywood history, including all six Star Wars films, the first three Harry Potter movies, and nearly all of Steven Spielberg's films, notably Jaws, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and all of the Indiana Jones movies. Williams has also written more than a score of musical compositions for the concert hall. And from 1980 to 1993, he served as the principal conductor of the Boston Pops Orchestra. In 2003, John Williams wrote the composition Soundings and conducted it for the opening of L.A.'s Walt Disney Concert Hall. And in 2009, he composed and arranged Air and Simple Gifts for President Barack Obama's inauguration. I spoke to John Williams when he came to Washington, D.C. to receive his National Medal of Arts. We spoke in one of the dining rooms of the Four Seasons Hotel in historic Georgetown. I began our conversation with an obvious question. Forty-five Academy Award nominations, five Academy Awards, four Golden Globe Awards, 20 Grammy Awards. Do you sleep? <laughs> well, I sleep fairly well. It will depend on the workload, uh, I suppose, as with all of us. You know, the busier we get sometimes, the more spinny we become. But music is a, not so much of a job as it is something we love to do. Certainly in my case, being a now senior musician, anyone who's practiced music for a number of decades will always tell you, I think, that the longer and harder we work, the more we become infatuated with music and see more in it and take more from it. And so it's hard work. Music is anyone who's learned and practiced an instrument or studied to write academic fugues will tell you it's a tough job, but it's the rewards are especially gratifying, I think. So it's a, for, for me, it's been a lot, it has been and continues to be a, a working life. And uh, I think I'm lucky that my subject is music because it is so rewarding. Can you tell me how you moved into composing for films? Well, I always composed. As a child, I tried to write little pieces, and as a teenager, I began to orchestrate some of them. And my father was a musician, and there were theory books sitting around the house that were there underfoot since age 8 or 10 or whatever. But piano was my serious study. I hadn't intended ever to become a professional composer. In fact, wouldn't imagine anyone could earn a living doing that. I began to work in the Hollywood studios as a pianist in the orchestras in the late 1950s. And uh, the first appointment I had was at the Columbia Studios Orchestra. 
the audition process was very simple. It was a sight reading session. I was a pretty good sight reader as a youngster. And, and I played in the orchestras of studios in Hollywood for four or five years, sitting every day watching older colleagues like Alfred Newman, some of our listeners will remember these names, Bernard Herrmann, certainly they may remember, Franz Waxman and others. And I, I played for all of these gentlemen in some fantastic films, that, some like it hot. I played on the piano, the orchestra score of that, and actually accompanied Marilyn Monroe in the headset when she did her little songs, and West Side Story, and South Pacific, The Big Country, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I still didn't have the notion that I might be a film composer or a professional composer until some of these older colleagues began to say to me, can you orchestrate X scene? This is Tuesday. We need it for Thursday morning. Of course, with the temerity of youth when everything seems possible, we always say yes. And a very gradual process took place from working primarily on the piano bench in the orchestras at the studios to the orchestrator's desk and eventually to the composing desk and was invited then to conduct some scores of my own and of others. So it was a very gradual process that I hadn't planned for or even anticipated that was the result of, like most things in life, really good fortune, wonderful timing, the great opportunities that came along at about the time that I was roughly ready for them. This might be a strange question, but can you talk about film music thinking you compose for concerts. You compose for films. How do you approach the music differently, or do you? Well, I th- there is a fundamental difference between film music and concert music. Film music is, very broadly put, an accompaniment to dialogue and to action. And there are rare moments when the orchestra can take full stage. And so it would be something like examining an opera score and taking away all the vocal parts and just having the accompaniment played so that when one is writing for film one just bear in mind that that we're accompanying people speaking and we don't have a hundred percent or eighty percent even of the listener's attention but we're we're finding a register a tessitura a place in the orchestra low high soft whatever that will fit the tempo of the dialogue and the register of the dialogue and the intensity of it or action and bear that in mind with every measure we're writing when we write for the concert hall we assume 100% of the audience's attention or maybe 80% of it we could have that much of it and that we need to fully engage them orally and hopefully intellectually and when it's not accompanying anything it's, it's engaging with the audience in a way that film composition usually fails if, it's, if it aspires to do. You can say that there never was silent film. When, it, when we didn't have synchronized sound, we had a pianist or a violinist or an organist in the, in the theater accompanying the action. And if you take orchestral music, particularly out of, say, action films, and watch the film without it, something of the energy or the circulation, if you like, of the, or the temperature of the film is is taken away and it becomes uh, inanimate almost. So that music has been shown itself to be an essential part of this audiovisual experience. And it's a very different compositional mentality from the concert stage approach. Well, music for film in some ways also offers the audience emotional cues about how to respond to what they're they're seeing. Right. That's that's a very, very good point. And, And 
we can not only underscore emotions that are developing, but suggest some that may not be, or references or allusions to, to characters or feelings. And that's a very important role in, in music that you point out. Well, you're wonderful at writing these riffs or musical signals that fit so wonderfully into the whole. For example, in Close Encounters, which it's the first movie I saw where the composer got a round of applause when the credits <laughs> rolled see. at the end. But that five-note tone that you did that then was such an integral part of the film and then is also part of the score that you create. Can you talk about how you approach that? Well, closing out is, is, in my experience, at least unique. The five-note motif that you mentioned was the result of a, a lot of experimentation, uh, meeting with my friend Steven Spielberg. I think I wrote about 300-plus examples of five notes, starting with all on one note, and, and with no rhythmic variation, just in, intervallic, that is to say, pitch differences. And we settled on this one. It was meant to accompany uh, the Kodai hand signals. People may remember it was a, an attempt at communication with extraterrestrials with whom we didn't know whether the language would work, whether the intervallic musical sounds would work, whether whatever would uh, experiment that we would do. Colors was another. We had a note for each color, if you remember. Mm-hmm. So we flashed a color and played a note to the aliens to see if they got that and then did a combination of two or three and finally come to the signal code that had a certain coloristic flash to it. And this was a particular part of the the script that had very little to do with the underscore of the film as a whole. The scene had to be developed musically in this way, the scene of communication. But then, as your question suggested, uh, the use of that thematic signal, it wasn't even a theme, it was more like a signal, to incorporate in the orchestral material following that scene. Interesting to me, five notes, I always felt was five notes is, constitute a signal. You can start with the Avon doorbell, which is what, two notes or three? I don't know what it is. Yeah, but if you go, but if you go to seven or eight notes, it's a melody. And I, I kept trying to say to Mr. Spielberg, I need more than five notes to make this point. It isn't enough. And his point to me was it should not be a melody, it should be a signal. And I think he was right in that sense, that if you went a little further, you already had two bars of music that you could play in whatever mode you wanted to express it. So it was an interesting exercise for me in, in getting to the point, absolute minimal number of syllables and words to make use a literary analogy perhaps of saying it all in three words instead of allowing yourself five you have had a very long collaboration with steven spielberg how did it begin we've been working together now for 37 years uninterruptedly it's probably the longest collaboration (laughs) in the history of theater or film that i know of Gilbert and Sullivan, I don't know what their stormy relationship, how long that went on. I, don't, I, don't, I should know, but I don't. I don't think it's 37. I don't think so. And, and, and I think it bespeaks a lot about Stephen himself. He's a very, first of all, very loyal man. And 
I could say, simpatico in, in every way. And, and it's been like a marriage without disputes or arguments. And so on. We've never really had an argument. We have, once in a while we'll have, a, not a disagreement, but I, but I may present a scene to him with the orchestra and say, it might be better if you do X or Y. Rarely. But every time he's done that one, he's asked me to rewrite something I've done better. I mean, rewriting actually for me is the art of writing anyway. It's it, 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 to, to work with the material we've... In, in journalism, the problem always is that we, what we write is printed the next day, and then a week later, if you look at the prose you've done, you think, oh, my God, it could have been so much better if I could have rewritten four sentences. But, but you don't have that opportunity. And film, writing film music is similar in, the, in, that, in that similarity to journalism in that we record the score, the next day it's being dubbed, that is mixed, the soundtrack's being permanently fixed, and it's out before the public. And you may hear it six months later and think, oh, could have done so much better if I'd had another month on that. But that's one of the dynamics of, of commercial filmmaking. Do you compose after you see a cut of the film? Yeah, the cut of the film will give us a lot of things. Tempo, rhythm, length of things, dynamics of all kinds. It'll even suggest textures, timbres, the coloration of many things that we can't, we mustn't do here and, and things that are required that seem to be uh, necessary. There are some exceptions. You and I talked about Close Encounters a few moments ago in the signal scene, the five notes. That musical shootout between the computer board and the arriving ETs was pre-recorded before the scene was shot because we needed to have the, have the music to shoot the scene to. There are other examples I could give you, but occasionally a director will come and say, here's a scene that I want to do and it will do X or Y. Or another more recent example, Harry Potter. Hedwig's music, the owl that flies, with, uh, and he has his music. Warner Brothers said, can you create some music to which we will manufacture a trailer that we can create to that music? And so I wrote, the, wrote and recorded the music with the orchestra, and Warner Brothers put together their trailer advert film for the first Harry Potter film. And everyone seemed to like the piece, so it became the main theme of, of most of the films. And that was written before I saw any film. I'd read the book and had an idea of what Harry Potter was, I thought, going to be musically, I thought. Short answer to your question, 95% of the cases in film music, we will want to see the film first. But there are notable exceptions. You wrote all the scores for the Star Wars films. The difference between the first one and the last there are musical references, but at the same time, you're also composing anew. Can you talk about that juggling act a bit? Well, the Star Wars experience has been, I think, unique in film music history, not because of me, and I'm waving my own flag, but because of this simple reason. The first Star Wars film that I did with George Lucas, whenever that was, I had no idea that there were going to be... that would be, He didn't tell me there was going to be a second Empire Strikes Back. I never heard of such a thing. And I thought that Star Wars was just over and completed when I put the baton down, the end of the first recording. And a year or so later, he rang up and said, we've, I have the next <laughs> installment, but we need, and we need the old music from the first film, but we also need new music for new characters and new situations. So a process started that lasted over, I guess it's 20-plus years, of adding bits and pieces of material to a musical tapestry that, was, that started to become, started to pile up off the floor. It was quite an extensive library of music. 
each film having over two hours of music, so there's about 12 to 14 hours, maybe 15 hours of orchestral music composed over a period of not two years, but 20. And that, I think, is a unique opportunity for a composer, one that I never expected to, to have. And it gave me an opportunity to go back over and perhaps improve some of the things I'd done. And what's fascinating is to me that maybe some of the newer music isn't any better or as good as the earlier ones. That's one's own personal inner struggle, inner voice. You know, when you write something when you're 40 years old, you wouldn't write it the same way when one is 70 and vice versa. One may be better than the other or a different kind of energy or a different kind of vacuity, whatever will go with it. So it's been a fascinating journey, that Star Wars. It's hard to think of music that announced a film with more verve than your music did for Star Wars. The music helped make it an event. You hear the music and everybody just lights up right away. Fantastic opportunity. I, I, I did see the, the credit crawl can't quote you what's on I should be able to, I suppose. I love that. Long but ago I, and far yeah, away. Yeah. Looking at that thing, I thought, well, it has to be a grand fanfare, and it has to start off with, put it this way, with a bang, you know, with a, re, with a full fortissimo explosion of energy and trumpets and the rest of it. And so I wrote the piece that I wrote. It starts with an unprepared high C on a trumpet. People can hear the music itself. With the way that orchestra, there's no preparation note for the trumpeters. It's very difficult. They have to grab it right out of the ether. It was a particularly great performance of brass playing. And so the spirit of, of, I think you could also say militarism, is apparent in the performance, I think, in the writing also, because it's a, it, it is a military piece, after all. It's spaceships and an army of space, if you like to think of it that way. So it has that swagger and that sense of commitment and dedication to, to the journey. I read, and correct me if I'm wrong, that Joseph Campbell had something to do with the way you envisioned the film. Is that true? Well, b- belatedly, uh, he instructed all of us, I guess, after the first film uh, appeared. He did his now famous interviews about Star Wars and, of course, told all of us those of us doing the film, probably even George Lucas who created it, I think they were fascinated with each other. Uh, he, he pointed out to us that these connective links with mythology and shared memory, even across cultures, added force to the nostalgia and the revived recollections of, of past heroes, if you like, and all the rest, villains and so on, with some sort of fundamental part of our humanity and explained to us that what we thought was going to be a Saturday morning popcorn picture for kids, which I thought it would be at the least, was something that resonated with people around the world. It's a film about children. You would expect it to be a children's film, but it does so much more for all the reasons that Joseph Campbell was able to articulate to us, and I'm sure he's right. And uh, the resonance of the music also, I think, is part of that awakening that takes place in, in, in our psyches in this cross-generational 
wave of neurons that go through all of us from generation to generation where we remember things, and we clearly do. They're not our experience, but the experience of our collected past, Star Wars. And there's something about music that just, I think, allows people to apprehend that on such a deep level. You know it almost without it knowing. Is, it is fascinating. You know, I, Leonard Bernstein spent his whole life, I think, trying to teach us that music is one thing. And that, that sure, there's great diversity in music, but there are universals in music that don't exist in language. Noam Chomsky and others will try to find them, and they get a grunt or a syllable shared by all the cultures. But the music that's divided in nature, a string is a string, and it divides in half in an octave, whether you're in Tibet or you're in New York City. So it's a shared language with our physiologies. It's part of how the ear works and the brain measures and the balance is attained and And resonates inside. And resonates inside emotionally. So we use music for our births and for our wedding and for our death and for our celebrations and for our wars and for our victories and... And we don't understand, I don't, at least I don't, I don't think Bernstein ever articulated it at all, no one could do, no one could do better than he, uh, that it is a part of our humanity, it's, 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 we need it like we need to have sheer language in the same way. And that's why it's so important that it's taught. Children who study music learn a different metric system. They learn to calculate things orally, intervals and so on, do re mis, giving special kind of instruction to the brain. And performance is, is a way of setting aside individuality and you sit in an orchestra or join a chorus and you cease to become an individual and now you're part of a unit that performs in a very special way. So music performance is a, an important part of social interaction. Yeah, music is... it's like breathing is have a cliche it's it's an important part of our human experience well we mentioned earlier your compositions for concerts and you did an arrangement of air and simple gifts for the inauguration talk about that the opportunity to to participate in the inauguration of president obama was certainly a special great event in my life experience the president very wisely selected Yo-Yo Ma to play. And, and the president asked Yo-Yo if he would put together a small group, three or four musicians only, to play something that would be four to five minutes long, and that Yo-Yo could select his colleagues, and he did. He selected a fantastic group of musicians, and rang me up and, and asked me if I could either write a piece or organize something that w- might be appropriate for that moment. And that he knew that either the president told him himself or that he'd heard that the president was particularly fond of Aaron Copeland's music. And, of course, there's no Copeland music for that combination of instruments in Copeland's pretty vast canon. And what we know of Copeland, most people, American audiences, will think of Appalachian Spring, the famous ballet that Copeland wrote, some of which has the wonderful old Shaker hymn, Gift to be Simple, in it. So I thought... A combination of, of the Shaker air as a tribute to President Obama's affection for Aaron Copeland might be appropriate if I could combine it with some perhaps slightly hymnal idea that might express in a very simple and not ostentatious way the solemnity and beauty of the moment and the promise of the moment and put it together for actually 
a kind of esoteric combination of instruments, violin, cello, piano, and clarinet. So that was the result of, of this effort. And it brought me together with two of my favorite colleagues, Yo-Yo Ma and Itzhak Perlman, and two younger people that I hadn't known before that Yo-Yo selected. Anthony McGill and Gabriela Montero. Yeah. And we were allowed the great once-in-a-lifetime privilege of participating in that event. You have won many awards, and, and now the National Medal of Arts, which is the highest award the nation gives to an artist. Can you just tell me what you thought when you, when you won that award? Well, I, I'm still a little bit numb about it, you know, because it is so grand, and you, you, one can only think, could anybody ever be deserving of such a, an honor? There are so many people who, who we could name that would be deserving and I just feel, beyond being a little bit stunned about it, frankly, enormously grateful and very excited about it. And I think, I think what, what it does for me is, is want me to be better. And I hope I have time to do that. Oh, and I join you in that hope. <laughs> Thank you so much, John Williams. It was really a pleasure and a well-deserved honor. Thank you. That was National Medal of Arts recipient John Williams talking about his extraordinary career as a composer. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from the soundtracks to E.T. and Jaws use courtesy of Universal Pictures. Excerpts from Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back use courtesy of Sony Music Entertainment. Excerpts from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, from the CD, The Music of John Williams, use courtesy of Silva Screen Records. Excerpts from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, use courtesy of Warner Brothers. Excerpts from Air and Simple Gifts, performed by Yo-Yo Ma, Itzhak Perlman, Gabriela Montero, and Anthony McGill, use courtesy of Sony Music Management. All the music has been composed by John Williams. Thanks to the Four Seasons Hotel in Washington, D.C. The Artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. And now you can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes U link on our podcast page. Next week, Valerie Boyd discusses her biography of Zora Neale Hurston. It's called Wrapped in Rainbows. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.